Well, good morning, everyone. I want to begin today by just adding a word of commendation and appreciation and hitchhike on what Todd has just shared with you. Throughout the past five weeks, in this series of messages, our attendance has been consistently very strong and growing. And your interest in the challenge to be all in, to be a totally consecrated, totally committed disciple of Jesus has been even stronger. And I want to compliment you on your teachability, if that's, if that's even a word. So thank you. And we do, as of this weekend, have just two more weekends remaining on this journey. Well, back in the late 1800s, there was a 350-pound wrestler named Yusuf the Terrible Turk. I think we got a picture of him up here, handlebar mustache and all. 350 pounds. That would have been a huge man back in that day. And for four years in Europe, he was unbeaten. So he sailed to America to challenge the undefeated U.S. champion, one Strangler Lewis, who weighed in at just over 200 pounds. But although much smaller in size, Lewis had a deadly signature move. He would position himself behind his opponent. He would get him around the neck and cut off his oxygen supply. And then when his opponent passed out, he would pin him and win the match. But when Strangler met Yusuf, he had a problem. Yusuf had no neck. There was nothing between his head and his shoulders. And so... Lewis couldn't get his signature hold. Shortly into the match, Yusuf flipped Lewis, pinned him, and the terrible Turk won the world championship. And he demanded that his winnings, $5,000, should be paid to him in gold. Now, in 1898, gold was $19 an ounce. Today, Gold is well over $1,300 an ounce. So we're talking about a whole lot more weight back then. Well, he stuffed the gold into his world championship belt and got on a ship back to Europe. But halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, a storm struck, the boat capsized, and Yusef attempted to board a lifeboat. As he did, he fell into the water. And because of his size and the added weight of the gold, he immediately disappeared beneath the waves, never to be seen again. True story. Wealth literally sunk Yusef, the terrible Turk. Now, there's a similar story in the Gospel of Luke. One day... Jesus was teaching on such serious subjects as hypocrisy and the reality of hell and the unforgivable sin, but this one guy in the crowd didn't hear a word of it. He had an issue that so distracted him he could think of nothing else. And finally, the man blurted out his problem, and we pick up on it in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher." Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, 
watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them, the larger crowd, this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he added, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Now, the teaching by Jesus in this passage is pretty countercultural. Doesn't sound very much to me like the American dream. Wikipedia defines the American dream as prosperity, success, and an upward social mobility for the family and the children achieved through hard work. But conventional wisdom does not always square up with God's revealed Word, and the American way of life can sometimes be out of sync with the values of the kingdom of God. And when this happens, we've got to decide which direction we'll go. Are we going to go with conventional wisdom, human wisdom, or are we going to go with God's wisdom? Well, two-thirds of the parables that Jesus used in His teaching specifically deal with how to relate to money and the material world. But listen, the financial principles found in God's Word are not a set of arbitrary rules to restrict us, to shame us, or even govern us as much as they are a loving Father's wisdom revealed to His children who will listen and trust and obey Him. Well, the way this all started out is that Jesus was interrupted and He was asked to step up and step into a disagreement between two brothers over a family inheritance. But Jesus resists making a legal judgment, and instead He makes a moral judgment, confronting the brothers, and at the same time, teaching the crowd in a parable, because Jesus knew that this family feud over an inheritance was symptomatic of three deadly sins that can find their way into any unguarded heart, and those sins are pride and greed and hoarding. First, pride. The rich man in Jesus' parable has got a serious eye problem. Take a look. He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones there. I will store my crops. I'll say to myself, clearly, this is a man with no humility before God. This is a man with no sense of gratitude to God. This is a man with no evident partnership with God. His focus is himself, and there are some problems with living this kind of self-absorbed life. 
The first one is this. If you focus on yourself, you will not give God credit. You won't give him thanks for the things he has done. Verse 16 says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. It's important to note that this man is not condemned for being rich. And to his credit, it looks to me like he came by his wealth honestly. No problem there. The problem is that as he looked at his bountiful harvest, he did not see the hand of God. He saw only his own efforts. And he's self-congratulatory, even though Jesus clearly said the ground produced a good crop. A pastor was invited to the home of a well-to-do Texan. And the man pointed to the north where oil wells dotted the landscape. And he boasted, 25 years ago I had nothing. Now as far as I can see, it's all mine. Turning to the south where a huge herd of cattle grazed, he said, it's all mine. Turning to the east where there were sprawling fields of grain, he said, it's all mine. Turning to the west where there was a beautiful forest, he said, that too is all mine. Then he paused expecting to be complimented for his great success. But the pastor put a hand on his shoulder, pointing to heaven with the other. He said, how much do you have in that direction? And the man stared blankly and confessed, I haven't thought about it. Well, if you focus on yourself, you'll fail to give God credit. You'll fail to give thanks for his blessings in your life. And if you focus on yourself, you'll also make plans that leave God out. He said, what shall I do? This is what I will do. He's confused. Do you see it? He thinks he is an owner when he's only a steward. He came into the world naked, and he's going out the same way. In the morgue one day when Donald Trump is laid out naked under a sheet, Right next to him, a homeless man, naked under a sheet. They look exactly the same. It was not his land. It was not his crops. It was not his barns. It was not his goods. He had a master that he should have consulted. His operation is not his to own. It's his on loan. And our life is not our own. Ours is a life on loan. Well, if you focus on yourself, you'll more than likely spend your resources on yourself. It's another thing. Verse 19, he said, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This man is clearly only concerned about the physical side of life, and he thinks he's got it made for years to come. He's well healed. He's in good health. He believes he can control his future. He can control his fate. Listen, that is just not possible for any of us. A terrorist bomb, a workplace shooting, stock market plunge, a stroke, a car crash, brain tumor, a heart attack, identity theft, a seizure, a bad fall. I don't, I don't want to make you paranoid here this morning, but can we just have a reality check? Life will ultimately catch up with us. Life will 
eventually go downhill for every one of us. And what did Jesus' words here say to us about the typical American approach to retirement? Should the purpose of retirement be, like the rich man said, to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry? Or as a Christian, should we use our freedom to invest our time and our resources in building God's kingdom? Well, if you focus on yourself, you'll also store up your treasure in the wrong place. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, when you see the word fool in biblical language, it's not a description of diminished mental capacity. It is indicative of a lack of spiritual discernment. And this man is a fool because he has been a practicing atheist. He did not recognize that his blessings were from God. And he did not recognize any obligation to God as a steward of his blessings. Fools operate with the ethic, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. And by, by contrast, wise men and women lay up for themselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves cannot break in and steal to use the words of Jesus. Well, finally, if you focus on yourself, you're going to be in conflict with God's purpose for your life. Jesus tags his parable with this line of exhortation. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. You know, money has one major weakness, and it's this. It has zero purchasing power after death. The rich toward God are those who use what God has given them to honor Him and to meet the needs of others in His name. And there are several examples of this in Scripture. In Luke chapter 7, verse 5, a godly, well-to-do centurion built and paid for a synagogue. And, and Jesus enjoyed the spacious home and the generous hospitality of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And these were prominent people in their city. Joseph of Arimathea donated, or, or maybe I should say loaned, his mausoleum to Jesus. And Barnabas sold land and gave the money to the early church to distribute. And Dorcas made clothing and donated it to poor widows. And your generosity will add a purpose and a joy to your life that otherwise you'll miss. But listen, pride was not the rich man's only sin. He also had a problem with greed. And greed was a real problem between these two brothers who got this all started by fighting over an inheritance. Someone has said, where there's a will, there's a war. And that's the case here. And evidently, both brothers were right there in the crowd. Only one of them spoke up. And I can almost see him gesturing to his brother. Lord, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And Jesus said, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you two? And then he said to them, to the two brothers, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed 
A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus cuts to the chase. He says, you boys don't have an inheritance problem. You boys have a greed problem. Now, how could he say that? I think it's because he knew what was going on here. He read their hearts. For one thing, they both wanted something they hadn't earned. That's an that's a evidence of greed. Children usually don't receive an inheritance because they deserve it or they have earned it. And I've noticed that kids can even be damaged by a large inheritance. It may be thought to be an act of generosity to leave wealth to your children, but listen, if their values are not godly, you will inadvertently subsidize their estrangement from God. And that's not good. They were also both willing to sacrifice their relationship for the sake of possessions and money. How many times has this happened in the process of an estate distribution? More often than not, I suspect. Possessions can easily become more important than people. Money can easily become more important than relationships. And my guess is that probably some of us in this room have had firsthand experience with a, a greedy relative in the process of probating a will. That's the danger of wealth. It often produces greed, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Abraham was a wealthy man. Jacob was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. 1 Kings 10.23 says King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. And yet none of these was condemned. Why? Because they were rich toward God. And Jesus confronted these brothers, and he condemned the rich man in the parable, not because they were wealthy, but because they were greedy. So, how do we push back on greed? I'm interested. I want to know. And the answer is, with contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 8 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, your greatest advantage in life is to be truly godly from the heart and to be contented. He goes on and adds, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Contentment is what we need. How do we measure it? I think, I think contentment is measured by our willingness to sacrifice. For example, <laughs> I've always thought it would be great to have a nice big walk-in shower. Uh, my brother just built a new home. He has a six-by-six six shower. I could lay down on the floor in his shower lengthwise and widthwise. It's tiled. It's lovely. Somehow, we've always had a knack for picking out homes that had teeny tiny showers. And my shower at home now is a small one-piece fiberglass deal. And I can turn around it in it, but I, I have to get myself really soapy first to be able to do it. <laughs> well, the estimate for tearing out the old shower at our house and putting in a larger tile shower is in the three to $4,000 range. And we had set aside money to do it. But instead, we decided to just buy a new shower head. 
Guess what? I love my new shower head. I'm as happy as a clam. I'm content. And now, we'll have more to give from our stored resources for our all-in generosity initiative. Something else. We've decided we don't need to lease a new car this year. The old lease is up. We're not going to lease another new car. We'll be content to make some other vehicle arrangements so we can dedicate those funds to our all-in expanded generosity from 2015 to 2017. Kayleen and I are looking forward to the 50th anniversary of Crossroads in 2017. And we're really excited, genuinely excited that we can give over and above our regular weekly tithes and offerings to be all in for our city and all in for our world. And we're also, we're also on our tiptoes in anticipation of the different ways that we're going to be able to trace God's hand and experience God's favor. Now, I wonder what God might lead you to do to push back on greed and to embrace contentment for the next couple of years. Well, there's one final sin that Jesus exposes in this parable, and it's the sin of hoarding. The rich man determined that what he needed to do with his abundance in an agricultural society was to store it. When his barns were too small to hold the grain, he decided He'll tear down his perfectly good barns and build bigger ones on site so he could, in his own words, store all my grain and goods. And the operative word here is all. He's not all in for the city. He's all in for himself. He's not all in for the world. He's all in for number one. He is not disposed to share anything to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those around him And as long as he's got plenty of good things laid up for many years, as long as he is living well off his hoarded wealth, he really doesn't care. According to Gallup's Economy and Personal Finance poll, 2014 was a high-water mark for stored resources in the United States. The gap between giving and saving is the widest it has been ever been. Hmm. The Great Recession, I think, in 2008 triggered people's insecurities, fueled people's anxieties, and the result is that people are less inclined to give and they are more inclined to keep. So how do we push back on this natural tendency to hoard for ourselves? And the easy answer is with generosity. And that's why I think our all-in generosity initiative as a church is so timely right now. And right now, I want to ask you to rivet your attention on these big screens and be blessed. In the past decade, Crossroads' heart for the world has continued to expand. We understand that God's blessing on our church is dependent on being unselfishly invested in the world with the gospel. There are 7.2 billion people in the world. Three billion of them have never been exposed to Jesus Christ. Of the 16,900 people groups in the world, 7,000 of them have no access to a Bible, a church, 
or contact with another believer. Some of our most important work is happening right now in North Africa, India, Mali, Kenya, Dearborn, Michigan, Myanmar, Haiti, and Japan. The good news is that we've grown to over $1 million a year, or about 16% of our annual budget, supporting these efforts. In addition to hundreds in our church who are engaged in the roles of going, sending, supporting, and praying, from Bible translation work, to church planting, to addressing issues like clean water and human trafficking, Crossroads wants to press forward by targeting the hardest groups to reach. The next part of the strategy is to grow our local and global outreach portion of the budget from 16% to 20% of our annual giving. Consider what it would look like to complete the task of being disciples, making disciples of the nations in our lifetime. Only God knows what can be accomplished when we are all in for our world. What excites me about the vision that uh, Crossroads has right now is specifically their um, focus on missions and taking the gospel to the world. The lives we've been able to touch and be a part of and uh, to nurture and care for and spread God's word throughout the world has been phenomenal. One way that my husband and I have been able to get engaged in missions at Crossroads is by starting a human trafficking task force at our church. And a lot of people aren't aware of this issue, um, but it's modern day slavery that's still happening. There's about 27 million people still enslaved today around the world. God called us to Ethiopia first, and the vision was that we had ministry in one country, but we were asked to spread this out over the whole continent. It seemed impossible and crazy. And if it had not been for the support, the prayer, um, of encouragement of Crossroads Church, we would never have gone. One of the missions efforts that Crossroads is a part of is reaching Arab Muslims here in the States. And we do that by partnering with ministries in Dearborn, Michigan, which um, there are people from Yemen and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, countries where we couldn't freely take the gospel. God is bringing those people here where they can hear truth, of love um, and, and particularly love for them. And before going on a mission trip, I didn't realize how much it would change me. I went to North Africa to invest in the country and invest prayers and lift them up to God. Uh, but after I came back, I found a new urgency for sharing the gospel. Because of the church's giving, uh, I've been able to have a first-hand encounter of uh, how God's kingdom can be spread through the generosity of people in our church. If you think that, that your contribution, your prayer, your time makes no difference, you're wrong. We're living proof of that. Kids are coming to know Christ all over the continent of Africa because of what's happening in this church. We were able to help them open the first ever restoration home in Myanmar. Um, where we're able to receive girls um, that have come out of trafficking. We had the opportunity to meet with a young man in a small town in the, near the Sahara Desert that wanted to hear about Jesus. I've heard stories from two beautiful young girls who have come to know the Lord. They've left Islam. We had 60,000 young people in Africa come to know Christ. 10,000 of them were Muslims. And at every step, Crossroads has been with us. Recently, I read a statistic in a book that said eight out of every $10 in the hands of Christians worldwide 
were in the hands of American Christians. And so if that's true, and we are basically holding the key to the majority of the resources that solve the world's problems, and that we also carry the name of Jesus, I think the question is, what are we going to do about it? You're so right, Courtney. You're so right. That is the question. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about meeting the deepest needs in our city? What are we going to do about meeting the deepest needs in our world? What are we going to do as an expression of going all in as a disciple of Jesus? Maybe the more relevant question is not what we're going to do. Maybe the more relevant question is what will you do? Placed throughout the atrium this weekend, we have our all-in commitment cards and envelopes, and I want to ask every one of you that calls Crossroads your church home to pick up one of these cards, one of these envelopes this weekend if you did not get one through the mail. This is what it looks like if you haven't seen it already. Last weekend, I talked about the left side of this card, the generosity journey. What we're asking is for 100% of our Crossroads folks to get started on a generosity journey. If you've never ever given before to become a first-time giver, if you've been a first-time giver to move up a rung on that ladder, to be at least an occasional giver, or perhaps even better, to become an intentional giver, to plan your stewardship, to make it more of a priority, to to give when you're not in attendance because it is a part of your stewardship. And just as you receive income, you steward that income. You steward God's blessings. It is God who gives you the ability to get wealth, whatever your wealth level is. It may be four-figure income. It may be seven-figure annual income. Whatever it is, you plan your giving. You're intentional about it. And perhaps if you've been intentional, then you could take a step up and begin to tithe. It's interesting that Scripture says bring the tithe into the storehouse. It doesn't say give it because there's a sense in which it belongs to the Lord. It is His, and we bring it to Him. Then the next step on the ladder is generous giving. And so if you've never been on a generosity journey, we want to challenge you to step up on this ladder and wherever you are on this ladder to plan to take a step up. And as you grow in your stewardship, you will grow in your discipleship because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is not something that you're doing for Crossroads. This is something that Crossroads is doing for you to provide you the opportunity to grow, to go deeper in this way. The right side of the card is my all-in commitment. And if you take one of these cards, get under a good light, have a quiet moment, and think about what you normally give in a year. We just sent out all the giving statements here at the end of the calendar year, so that number should be clear in your mind. We have an Easter offering, a year-end offering at Christmas time, and in addition, whatever giving you do during the course of a week. In the course of a year, there's a number. Put that number up there, add to it your expanded annual generosity for all in. Just commit this to prayer. Do what the Lord tells you to do, what He prompts you to do. Write that number there. That'll give you a total. Take it times two years. 
which is our generosity initiative. That'll give you a number. And then there's a place for a gift from stored resources. We talked about that earlier. You put that number there, and you add this number and this number, and it gives you your two-year all-in generosity commitment. Then there's a place for you to print your name. You don't sign your name. There's nothing legal about this. But a printed name lets us know that this is a real commitment. This is a serious commitment. And then because we have 4,000 people in this church and we're all wired differently. We know that some of you might appreciate this second slide. Uh, I think you can read it on the big screen, uh, but it just simply shows how we're going to reach our two-year one-fund goal. Two years of our operation as a church is $15.6 million. The additional $9.4 million will underwrite this vision that we have for reaching our city, reaching our world. And as you look at this card, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, I am in this category, but I could be in that category. Again, that's up to you. You commit this to prayer. Do what God prompts you to do. But we want to ask every person, 100% of us who call Crossroads your church home, take this card. They're out there in the foyer under the all-in logos on either side. There are cards and envelopes. Take one and take it home with you and thoughtfully and prayerfully consider your response. Bring it back next weekend filled out ready to present as a tangible worship expression of being all in. And you should know that 100% of our elders and 100% of our pastors have already led the way on this along with several who were here last Sunday night for our advanced commitment event. If you have any kind of special questions that haven't been addressed, you can go online and that question will be answered online. You might want to pick up a brochure if you didn't get one at home or if you misplaced it, and most of your questions would be answered in that booklet. And you can pick up one of those pieces at the Connection Center this morning. The All In Generosity Initiative is our desire to have every person who is a part of our church do something, to participate at some level by either entering the generosity journey or taking a step up on that generosity ladder. And we're praying that next weekend, 100% of us will be a part of achieving this vision. And listen, friends, the next two weekends, our focus will be all in for you. We've talked about all in for the city, all in for the world. The next two weekends are devoted to all in for you. What total commitment, what consecration will mean for you as a disciple of Jesus? We want to be a deeper church. We want to be a more dynamic church. We don't want to be a church that's part of the landscape. We want to be salt and light in this community and in this world. We want to be a church that's got an enlarged heart for our city and our world. And we could bump along, business as usual, year after year, and it would probably be fine, but it wouldn't be our best. And we want to give of our best to the Master. Next weekend, I promise you, will be a weekend that you will not soon forget. Some very special things are planned, but without your participation, we can't be all in. Without your commitment card, everything we've done, the 13 nights, vision nights last fall, the eight weeks of daily devotionals, the four special videos, the printed pieces, the seven weekends of Bible teaching on total commitment, the advanced commitment event last Sunday night, all of that will be blunted in its impact. But with your 
participation. We will truly be all in as the church. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for seasons in our lives when we are prodded and prompted and motivated and called and encouraged to move to higher ground spiritually. Lord, we believe this is a time that can edify every person in our church family and elevate our church to do things that are unprecedented, things we've never done before. Thank you, Lord. We are not ungrateful for all the ways that you've shown your favor. The five new missionary partnerships that have resulted in scores of congregations being planted and thousands of conversions. We're just grateful for what Community One and the Crossroads Arts Academy and all of our West Side Ministry Center, all the outreaches of the recent years. But Lord, we want to we want to see if you'll take us farther and higher. And so altogether we want to be consecrated. We want to be totally committed. And so lead us. Convict us by the Holy Spirit of where we need to go in the days ahead as a church, as individuals in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.